you are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, Chapter Leadership Committee member and award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. This is March 26th, 2023, and this is episode 218 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll hear a conversation I had with author Lenore Skomel and filmmaker Nico Reno about Ida Lewis, who is probably the most famous lighthouse keeper in American history. First, has anything interesting happened on this date in lighthouse history, Cindy? Yes. On March 26, 1790, Congress passed an Appropriation Act authorizing, quote, a sum not to exceed $147,168.54 to be collected from duties on imports and tonnage to build a lighthouse on Cape Henry, Virginia, and to cover other expenses stemming from the act for establishment and support of lighthouses, beacons, etc., unquote. It was the first appropriation passed by Congress that was specifically for lighthouses. Yeah, that act was kind of a mouthful, wasn't it? There. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Cape Henry Lighthouse in Virginia was established in 1792. The original tower there was damaged in the Civil War. A new lighthouse was built nearby in 1881, and both lighthouses still stand uh, fairly close to each other. I know you're pretty familiar with them, Cindy. You've been there. We talked about it not long ago on the podcast, right? Yes, we did. I had a chance to visit and climb uh, the old Cape Henry Light several years ago, and it provided a great view of new Cape Henry Light. So I'm sure uh, many of our listeners, probably most of our listeners, are familiar with Ida Lewis, again, one of the most famous lighthouse keepers in American history. Uh, But let's start with some background on her. So let's tell everybody about Ida Lewis and today's guests. Sure, Jeremy. Ida Lewis, born in Newport, Rhode Island in 1842, became one of the most celebrated lighthouse keepers in American history. Her father, Hosea Lewis, was appointed the first keeper of Lime Rock Light Station in Newport Harbor in 1853, and Ida learned to care for the light as a teenager. Hosea Lewis suffered a paralyzing stroke in 1857 that left him unable to fulfill his duties as keeper. From that time, young Ida was essentially the keeper, although she didn't get the official appointment until much later. Ida's rowing skills, strength, and courage were to come into play many times during her life at Lime Rock. Officially, she's credited with 18 lives saved, but the number was possibly as high as 35. The modest Ms. Lewis kept no records of her life-saving exploits. Ida's fame peaked after an 1869 rescue of two soldiers from an overturned boat, and she became one of the most famous women in late 19th century America. She remained keeper at Lime Rock until her death in 1911, and the light station was renamed Ida Lewis Light. Today, it's the Ida Lewis Yacht Club. So we have two guests in today's episode for our discussion of Ida Lewis. Lenore Skomel is the winner of multiple awards for literature, biography, and humor with over 30 years of professional writing experience as a journalist, columnist, author, and playwright, and 17 books published to date. Lenore's book on Ida Lewis, The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, was originally published in 2002. The New York Public Library listed it as a 2003 Best Book for Teens, and the Oakland Press wrote, quote, fascinating, a lively, fast-moving account to hold the reader's interest, spellbinding, unquote. The book has been optioned to be adapted into a motion picture to be directed by Nico Reno. Nico is an award-winning filmmaker, originally from Mystic, Connecticut. His career began as assistant to actor-director Ben Affleck on the film The Town, before he transitioned into creative development for Robert Downey Jr. and multiple Academy Award-winning producers. Nico's feature film, Hooking Up, a romantic comedy starring Sam Richardson and Brittany Snow, was released in 2020 and is available on Hulu. Nico is currently producing and fundraising for a new short film that will bring attention to the Ida Lewis Film Project. Lenore Skomel was first on the podcast about three years ago, and both Lenore and Nico took part in a special Zoom event we did a few weeks ago. It was great to have a chance to talk with them both again, so let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking this afternoon with Lenore Skomel and Nico Reno. Thank you so much for being with me today, Lenore and Nico. Really appreciate oh, it. 
Our pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having us. So I've known you both for a long time. Uh, Lenore, you've been on the podcast before, and both of you took part in a virtual uh, Zoom event we just did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but for some listeners to this podcast, this will be the first time that they'll be hearing a lot of this material. So I think it's a little, I think it's okay if there's just a, maybe a little bit of overlap between this and the uh, the events uh, we've done previously. So. I hope you don't mind answering maybe a few of the same questions uh, today. Uh, First of all, Lenore, uh, and this is something new, uh, you're doing a lecture tour in conjunction with the 20th anniversary of your book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter. Can you tell me more about this uh, tour you're doing? Sure. It's actually the 21st year, as you know, Jeremy, since you you pointed that out before, which you're right. But the book came out in late fall, so we're kind of you know, rounding down, as it were. And it's more exciting to say 20th anniversary than 21st. But, uh, and I think what is exciting about that is the book has been in continual publication, which to me says a lot about the interest in female heroes in women's history, uh, and that there's still an interest in wanting to bring people like Ida Lewis and, you know, there are a slew of women just like her, you know, back, you know, back into public awareness. So that's what I was excited about to realize they haven't just like a lot of other my books that uh, other books that I've written are out of print. Uh, this one is not. So just the idea to do the tour was kind of in conjunction with also Nico uh, writing the screenplay and us really wanting to get Ida Lewis up on the silver screen and and, you know, humanize her you know, make her real to people because a lot, you you can read a book and it's great, but as you know, the book can only go so far. And it's not like other biographies where we have tons and tons of information and lots of pictures and all of that. It's Ida's life, even though she was famous, you know, it it was pretty private. So we don't have a lot of details. So the idea of actually, you know, making her flesh and blood and giving her a life on the screen is extremely exciting to me. So the idea of doing the the lecture tour and Nico's going to be involved in part of that over the summer, I think is great. And a lot of the places we're going to, like lighthouses and historical societies, they still have the book. Uh, they sell the book. So there is a large interest and a lot of interest in this woman. So I'm mm-hmm. yeah, pretty excited about it. Yeah, well, it is all very exciting. And and uh, Nico, as Lenore just mentioned, you are taking part in part or parts of the, the tour. Uh, part. Is it July you're going to be taking part? Is that do I have that yeah, right? I- Lenore and I will be doing uh, the, a leg of the tour together in person in July around like southeastern Connecticut, Newport, Rhode Island, um, and any other places that we sort of like add on to the tour right during that time, like like mid-July. I think like July, what is it, Lenore, like the week of July 15th, I think? Yes, I think it's 17 to 20 right now. We're still adding dates, but that's yeah. the crux of it. So we'll be together. I think those are going to be really fun. But in the meantime, you know, Lenore's going to be out on the road, uh, other other stops along the way, and I'll be zooming in whenever I can. Excellent. Excellent. So I want to get back to uh, near the end today. I want to get back to that and maybe say a little bit more about the uh, the lecture tour. But Lenore, let me ask you, and I know I've asked you this before. hope you don't mind me asking again. But what led you to write your book on Ida Lewis in the first place? Well, because Ida Lewis, to me, I mean, we're going back, remember, the book came out 20 years ago. We go back to 10 years before that, my sister was in college. She went to Salve Regina, which is located in Newport, Rhode Island. And my parents used to love to go to Newport. Uh, I grew up in Connecticut. So I grew up hearing about this person. But in my mind, because I really couldn't get any factual information other than the same blurb, you know, the same paragraph that would be repeated over and over again in, as a chapter note or or something in, in books, I thought maybe this was like a mythical figure. Maybe this is like Paul Bunyan. Maybe she never really lived, you know? And even if you took the tour, you know, and the tour guides on the little boat and they take you uh, around Narragansett Bay and they point out the lighthouse, the information changed every time. And I'm like, okay, this woman doesn't, we don't really know anything about her. So that's what launched it. And so in conjunction with talking to my publisher at the time, they love the idea of a strong female heroine. And I don't mean strong like Eleanor Roosevelt strong. I mean, physically strong. Like the idea of someone who was physically strong, who was a woman, especially in that time period of the mid 1800s was like very intriguing to them. So I thought, okay, I could, I knew I could get them to, to buy it. And that was important to me, obviously. So that's what launched the interest. And then the more I initially, honestly, it was going to be about Kate Moore. 
And I realized there's so little about Kate Moore. It's actually tragic, quite frankly. But and the Internet was just in its infancy. So there wasn't a lot you could do online. So I thought Ida Lewis would be easier because I could go to the library, go to the historical society, you know, and do my research sort of hands on. So that's what launched my interest in it. And the more I got to know her, the more fascinated I was with her. You know, that's really interesting. I, I don't remember knowing that you thought about writing something on Kate Moore. I, I find that yeah. extremely interesting. She was such a, an interesting character, but you're right. We uh, know, sadly, uh, too little about her. Not much. But, uh, but Nico, I think you might have ideas about fleshing that out. <laughs> but maybe uh, let's not talk about that right at this moment. But uh, Nico, let me ask you, what attracted you to Ida Lewis in the first place? So I I grew up in Groton, Connecticut, and I grew up sort of within sight of Ledge Lighthouse in New London. And um, I've been living in Los Angeles for many years now, and I was feeling a little homesick. And I think at one point I picked up a book about like life-saving along the Connecticut and Rhode Island coast. And it was the first time I had ever read about Ida Lewis or heard about Ida Lewis. And I was so taken with her story. And I was surprised to have never had heard about her before. And it made me think like, well, I grew up like a 45 minute drive from Newport. So if I don't know about Ida Lewis, then who else doesn't know about her? And like, why aren't we taught about her? Like, this is crazy. And so I became really interested in just the history and culture of light keeping. And I spent about a year just like researching, reading everything I could about it. And that's Jeremy when you and I met, because I started reaching out to a lot of like authors of books that I've read just to like have more conversations. Cause I, I became really inspired to, to try to make a film that took place in this world. And that sort of reminded us of this kind of forgotten piece of particular, particularly American history. Um, mm -hmm. I just, there's so much heroism and rich color and texture of the, of the people and their stories and families and everyone who kept the lights. And I became kind of overwhelmed trying to figure out like, how do I put all of this into a film? And that's why I wanted to have conversations with people like you, Jeremy. And I remember I chatted with Eric, Eric J. Dolan at one point, and just a lot of other authors and all of our conversations kept bringing me back to Ida Lewis as in like, why would you try to create a composite character when there's this real person whose story is incredibly compelling and and kind of emblematic of the time and i think that's i think what drew me to her and i think what draws so many of us to her is i think ida's story is both quintessential and extraordinary at the same time like many women kept lights and anonymity but i think what makes ida's story special is that there's something that sort of encapsulates that era and that experience for women that points at kind of like the, the blatant hypocrisy of sort of patriarchal thinking, I think, of that time. You know, she became the poster child for like lighthouse keepers in America at one point. She, she literally was then and is now kind of the most famous lighthouse keeper in America. And the men in power in that time had no problem with her being the most famous keeper. Yet it still took them 10 years to make that official. Right. And, and that took considerable bureaucracy. So there's something about her story that feels very relevant and also very remarkable that feels like emblematic of her time, but timely for us as well, that I think makes her story sort of ripe for telling now. And I think the fact that we've kind of forgotten about her is a tragedy. And I think part of what Lenore and I continue to do through one and get this film made. And I think that's why I think Lenore's book is still in print so successful is that I think when people learn about her, there is a desire to learn more, mm -hmm. uh, to try to keep her spirit alive. So those are all the things that I think really continue to inspire me about her. Yeah. Well, that's great. You've obviously given this a lot of thought. I love love everything you're saying. So Lenore, uh, as you said a little while ago, and actually, Nico, you kind of said it too, Ida was a very quiet and modest person. We don't know a tremendous amount about her private life. But uh, Lenore, I think uh, in your book, you're able to kind of fill in some of the gaps in our prior knowledge of Ida. How did you, how were you able to do that? And secondly, do you feel you were able to close a lot of those gaps? I tried to, let's put it that way. Obviously, there are many, many more the question marks than there are answers. Uh, in doing the research, obviously, I relied heavily on secondary material, newspaper articles, things like that. And from that, I was able to, I think, fairly accurately 
uh, make an assumption about her personality because we, you know, we have nothing written by her. You know, she didn't journal. She wasn't, wasn't like that. And that's sort of in keeping with her character, quite frankly. I don't think she ever thought that anyone would care about what she was thinking. I also feel that, and this in lion's share was panned out with um, her experience with her very short-lived marriage, which she never spoke about. You, you find nothing. And Nico and I have, believe me, we have scrubbed files to try to find information that wasn't just conjecture by some reporter about yep. this woman's private life. And I think that was more in keeping with her character as a Yankee, closed mouth, this is none of your business, that type of thing. That was pretty much how she was hardwired, quite frankly. So finding all these other little bits out, you know, she obviously had an authorized autobiography or well, biography uh, that was written about her that she endorsed and said, this is my definitive account. But, you know, the questions all remain about, well, how did she get connected with Colonel Brewerton to write this? Why was she so inclined to do that? How did she even know to do that? You know, there were there are so many things given who she was and her her situation in life, you know, if you really look at, at the system of employment back then as sort of a kind of a caste system in a way where she was, you know, kind of low level. How did she know to do some of these things? Why was she approached by a lot of prominent people? So those are the questions that I'd love to be able to answer. And now that the Internet is so much more advanced and with Nico working on the movie and us doing the book tour, it's opened that door again to really try to find out, just dig much deeper to find out what was her motivation uh, during her mm -hmm. lifetime. You know, we see the result of it, but I really was curious, I'm curious, still am, about how did she think about this? Like the decisions she made, why did she make them? You know, so that's the stuff I'd love to be able to answer. So, yes, I feel like I was able to provide a skeleton, but now we got to hang some more meat on that skeleton. Let's let's find out a little bit more about what made made item move, what made her function the way that she did. So when you say uh, talk about adding meat to that skeleton, are you talking mostly uh, about the movie or are you thinking of writing another book? I'm thinking, well, what I'd like to do is be able to write a second edition of the book to add more information because I have actually started that because mm -hmm. as, as Nico, you know, and, and Nico, you've been great because you've really motivated me, you know, with the movie. And I thank you for that. But, and Nico shares the same passion. So it's very, it's, it's wonderful to have sort of a comrade in this, but the more, uh, the more questions that we have come up with, the more I've wanted to find out, how can I really add more to the book that has fallen short and maybe some correct, some minor, I'm not going to say anything and it is wrong, but there were some, there were some assumptions that I made that I didn't have a lot of information about, you know, why she did certain things that she did, like, you know, even just getting married. I mean, she was engaged by the time she was famous. Okay. She'd been engaged a couple of years before. Uh, how did she meet him? You know, who was he to her? How did he get to Newport? You know, he lived in Black Rock, you know, Bridgeport, Connecticut. So it's like some of these things we we have no information about. But so that's been sort of intriguing to me. So to answer your question, yes, I'd love to be able to add more. I They're perfectly happy with the version of the book that's out right now, you know, my publisher. So I think um, once the movie is going to be made, they'll be more encouraged to, OK, let's do a second edition because there'll be a renewed interest. You know, so that's kind of what I'm hanging my hopes on. Nico, I was very privileged to read your your screenplay. Thank you so much for sharing that with me for both the short film we're going to talk about, but also for the longer film. I'm very excited to follow the progress of both uh, projects. In your screenplay, the, the longer screenplay, obviously you take some license and fill in the, the gaps about what we know about, about Ida. We don't know a lot of, as Lenore just said, we don't know a lot about the time when she was married. In fact, we know virtually nothing <laughs> about that time. Uh, and that is one of the things you you have in your screenplay. How did you deal with that aspect of the story, kind of filling in that that hole and what we know about Ida Lewis? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for reading it. Obviously, like your your input uh, and feedback is really valuable. And yeah, I think first of all, I just want to say that I, I think I think creative license is paramount anytime you're adapting nonfictional material. I think it's important to remember that I'm not a historian, right? Like I'm, a, I'm an entertainer. So my goal is to, is to be true to the spirit of Ida's life um, and to get as much as possible historically accurate, but, but I'm still, my goal is to, is to tell a compelling story, right? So I, I need her to be an active protagonist. So like, even in my story, I have Ida kind of doggedly pursuing official appointment. Did that happen in real life? I mean, no, there's no real evidence to sort of suggest that, but 
Um, but there's no movie without it. So it, it's, it's important to take those licenses. And that's something that we kind of have to do with William and her marriage because we know so little about it. And as Lenore has mentioned, we did a lot of digging together to try to uncover even more. And so what we know about him is that he was, you know, a ship carpenter's son who became a captain. Like Lenore said, they were engaged for a couple of years before Ida got famous. She did marry him and moved to Bridgeport after she became famous. She was only there for what, two years tops, we think maybe less. And so things didn't work out. She returned to Newport. They never got divorced. So there's a lot of speculation and there's a lot of us to kind of add to Lenore, the previous question you asked Lenore too, is like when you're doing research like this, you have to read between the lines, I think a lot, because I think we all know that everything you read, you know, that's in print is not always, is not always as maybe factual as we want it to be or true. And everything has an agenda. So you always kind of have to think like, well, what was going on in every moment where she was being interviewed and every article that was read, every quote, okay, that's what she said, but like, was her father in the room? Did that sort of like dictate how she had to answer that question to be diplomatic? Like there's so much nuance you have to get into. So when you start to speculate, you think, okay, well, when it comes to William and Ida, they never got divorced. It could either mean that she honored her commitment to God in marriage religiously, or that maybe this was an arrangement that worked for both of them, which they didn't really realize until afterwards. And the, the direction that I decided to take the story of William Wilson and the script and the liberty that I took is to kind of honor an aspect of, of Ida's kind of lore that I didn't feel responsible committing to the story, which is there's some historical speculation about Ida's sexuality, right? Because she never really seemed like she wanted to get married. She wasn't married very long. She never remarried. She kind of lived alone. And I thought, well, I don't, there's no evidence to sort of point to her sexuality one way or another. So I don't want to get into that. But, but to honor that, and in thinking as a feminist filmmaker, I, you know, I thought, well, why do we assume that it's her? <laughs> like, you know, it takes two to tango. So like, you know, maybe there's an interesting comment to be made about like in a, a marriage that maybe a man might benefit from in a society that might not be as accepting of like him, especially if he's trying to be a ship captain. And so I kind of asked that question in the script and that's the way I took it. And I think that it, it homages something about Ida's um, legacy without sort of making it about her and also creates an interesting another layer of the conversation about that time period and the experiences of people who are sort of on the outlier of society and, and what their experiences might be. And there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot, I think, I think when you don't know something historically, it actually frees you up to take a little bit more Liberty with it and to, and to explore other aspects of what that story might be. Right. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating to speculate about it. And speaking of such things also in your screenplay, you have Ida meeting Kate Moore, who we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Kate of course was the uh, longtime keeper at Fairweather Island light, also known as Black Rock Harbor light in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, just a fascinating character and a very similar story to Ida in many ways. Uh, she basically became a keeper because her father became incapacitated uh, as keeper. So we don't know if they ever met, but as you and I discussed, I think going back uh, several years, it certainly is extremely possible that they met. Mm -hmm. uh, but why did what made you choose to include that kind of theoretical meeting in your screenplay? Well, the short answer is because it's it's too good to not have a screenplay, right? The idea that they would have met and have a conversation is just too juicy. But, you know, more thematically, the years that Ida spent in Bridgeport are really a turning point in her story and really like a turning, a turning point in her life. Up to that point when she got married and left town, she had never left Newport. She wasn't really exposed to the outside world. She grew up in this two-acre island of rocks, and that was her entire existence. And and again, if you read between the lines and you really start to study a lot of you know, the articles written about her, there is a change in her demeanor. I think when she got back from yeah. Bridgeport, that's really when she started to be a little bit more outspoken. She became more vocal about wanting to be appointed. Um, her father had passed away at that point. Her mother had sort of assumed the position of keeper instead of her, even though she was famous for being the keeper. I think if you start to speculate, I think that she became more exposed, I think, to the world at large and to the experiences of other women. And I think she became back a little, she came back to Newport a little bit more fiery than when she left. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that there's there's a really cool idea, whether or not it happened, like you said, that she would have been in Bridgeport in a loveless marriage where she felt really lost and estranged from her family. And here's this light right there in town that's kind of a beacon for her. And it's probably would have been the only place that she maybe would have felt comfortable at home. So it's not too far-fetched to believe that she may have ventured out there. And what would she have found? She would have found Kate Moore. And what's interesting is you have Ida, who is at this point famous, who comes face to face with a woman who by all accounts on paper has five times the record that Ida has, right? Has been keeping the light for far longer, has more lives saved on record, and lived in complete anonymity, never got the attention or the fame that Ida got. But here's Ida, for famous for being exemplary. And Ida comes face to face with a woman who, by all accounts, is kind of better at the job than she is, right? And so I think being exposed to that would have been a major turning point for her. And in terms of me sort of writing a screen story about Ida, it serves as a thematic turning point in terms of how she decides to take this spotlight she has on her and and use it in a way that maybe she didn't before then, um, either to appoint herself or to kind of, you know, maybe politicize her position a little bit more before. And so it's both fun to imagine what their conversation would have been like, but also thematically from a narrative perspective, I think it's kind of a, a vital story point that kind of just worked. The fact that Kate Moore would have been there and that's just like, it just happens to be where Ida ended up living for a time is really sort of fascinating anecdotally in terms of history. And she literally, the house was, you saw the plot of land where she lived, if she lived in her father-in-law's house, which is probably where they lived. uh, Because according to the city directory, her husband, William Hurd, was living at that address. So we are to assume that, you know, he would have come back with his wife and lived with his family. That was common. But literally that plot of land is, you could see, the lighthouse from it because it was on the coast. So the probability of them meeting is pretty great considering they would be traveling in the same area. You know, the chandlery was there and the stores and all of that. So, and and the other thing, interesting thing, uh, as Nico was saying, is that Ida was 30 years younger than Kate. Yeah. You know, and had all this fame. Well, at that point she was famous, but Kate was you know, like 60 years old. And so there's that sort of generational difference too. So including it seemed to me like a logical and when I read your plan, it was screenplay. I thought it's a logical assumption that that would have happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. to go to point to how deep Lenore and I have gotten into research, Lenore and I have both been to Fair, Fairweather Island together. We've been in the lighthouse, and I actually have a rock that I took from <laughs> Fairweather Island on my desk <laughs> when I write. So it's 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 been fun to sort of explore a lot of these places in person. Like Lenore and I have been to Lime Rock, you know, Island together, and to really kind of feel those spaces has been really helpful and kind of bringing Ida's story to life. Yeah, well, I agree. It's not so easy to get on uh, Fairweather Island out to the lighthouse there. The breakwater is uh, falling apart, basically. It's uh, kind of <laughs> yes. kind of tricky, kind of dicey. But I'm, I'm so glad you included Kate Moore uh, in your screenplay. Uh, she doesn't get enough attention. And I, I feel there's a... Uh, a best uh, best supporting actress award in the making for somebody there. <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah, I mean, it's such a it's a great uh, it's a great little sort of one day role for uh, for a powerhouse actress to come in and play. That's for sure. So here's a, a question for both of you, but uh, either or both of you. But I, I want to direct it to Lenore first. Why do you think Ida Lewis became so crazy popular, so famous? Uh, in 1869, even though she had been at Lime Rock for quite a few years before that, suddenly her fame exploded in 1869. Why? Why was that? I think it was that perfect storm of what was happening in the country. This is my my guess, which I think is fairly accurate. Uh, that she, you know, you're in the Reconstructive period following the Civil War. I mean, 1869. You're what not about five years into it. The country, anyone who's read about that time period, is a terrible time for the country. There were a lot of, you know, wounds that had to be healed, and there was a lot of animosity still. I think people were used to having heroes that were soldiers. You know, we made one of them a president, you know, Ulysses Grant. But I think the uh, that gaping need to have have something, have have a hero, have a hero that we could that the country could believe in, could really rally around. I think Ida filled that void pretty handily because she was non-political. She, she was a woman, 
an unlikely heroine, obviously. She was physically strong and she was doing something out of uh, the integrity of her spirit, which was I'm, I'm helping people, I'm saving people without the expectation that she would have celebrity or fame in return for that. And that coupled with the burgeoning, you know, the suffrage movement and the fact that that had been gaining political steam, even though she never aligned herself with it. But women were in the forefront of politics at the time. I think that was a major part of it, too. But for me, you know, I, I just feel like she she filled this need. And we had also this confluence of uh, the newspapers were using the wire services. We, you know, we talk about this in our talk a lot about how, you know, even though they'd been around for a couple of decades, it was really the Civil War that made those wire services become an integral to the way information was disseminated at the time. You know, people could find out instantly what was happening, you know, overnight, what was happening elsewhere in the country or overseas. And I think that's how that little tiny story about her saving those soldiers I think that's how it spread. And then, of course, reporters got interested in it because they're like, wait a minute, what's this? You have this woman like saving like soldiers, big burly guys and hauling them out of the water. What the heck's that about? And so one thing led to another. And and who knew? But it, it literally did explode over the course of four months where everybody knew about this woman. I agree with Nora. I think it was like I think it was just the timing of it. And I think that her story was so compelling. I, I think that in the darkest times, we always kind of look for hope. And I think in a way, I think as a country, we projected, I think, our needs and desires and sort of hope onto this person and, and made something out of her that she wasn't at the time. I don't think she asked for any of it or wanted any of it or expected any of it. It's almost like her story was taken from her and we kind of determined what her story was uh, for better or worse, you know. But yeah, I think a lot of she was just a product of the time and um, and just got swept up in it. Just made me think that in a way, maybe both of you are kind of giving Ida's story back to her in a way, giving her her a more authentic uh, portrayal, even though it's you're largely fictional, somewhat fictionalizing it. It's still true to her spirit. I think that's I like to hope so. I, I think in a way, in a way, yes, I'd like to think so. But in a way, we also just might be part of the lineage of people who, <laughs> exploiting who, her. Her, story and <laughs> exploiting her. I hope not. But um, I, I think we're trying to I think we're trying to 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 set the record straight in some capacity and to and to allow her to have some of her own agency again. Sure. Uh, also, Lenore, when you were talking about why she became so popular, I was thinking uh, you talk about the divisions in the country at that time and everything and the healing that was going on and makes me think, geez, maybe uh, we could use a national hero in some way uh, right now. <laughs> but I would agree I with that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where, <laughs> where, where he or she is going to come from, but we can we can hope maybe for that. Not the Internet, that's for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, probably not from the world of social media. I know uh, we covered some of this on the podcast before when you were a guest, Lenore, uh, and also on the Zoom event we did. But and this is uh, for either or both of you, and we don't have time to talk about all of Ida's rescues, but maybe for people who might not know a lot about her, just one or two or maybe three of her rescues that you think are, are most interesting and memorable. Would either of you like to, to describe them? I think her first rescue is worth mentioning. She was 16 years old and she saved four boys her same age who were drowning. And I think just thinking about that is a great entry point into who Ida is and her legacy. Um, the fact that this 16-year-old girl was able to sort of rescue four of her peers, who then were so embarrassed they didn't tell anybody about it, um, that they had been rescued by, by a girl. And I think one of the, the best anecdotes about that story is years later, after she became famous, one of those boys who then was a man was buying like a, like a souvenir of Ida Lewis's years later and admitted only then that she had saved him. And then one of the other boys apparently was a pallbearer at her funeral. And I think that that's remarkable. And can I add too, that this is a metaphor for her life because she at 16, she, as I said, there is this big gap between who she was and the boys that she saved. These boys were sons of very wealthy people in the town. Uh, uh, and so she saves these guys and um, they're like, uh, 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 you know, we, we don't want to acknowledge you. Then later in life, they're like, OK, now we're going to acknowledge this. But it, it's sort of the story of her life. You know, even though she was embraced in a sense by, you know, all of these robber barons that came, you know, to Newport, she was visited by them, you know, the Vanderbilt, the Astors. She really was she really was like a, a tourist attraction. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they never really gave her the respect that she deserved. She was never invited to their homes to have a dinner or tea or any of that. So it's sort of interesting that she was so instrumental, even to our country as this national hero. But yet, you know, did we ever give her that respect that she actually deserved? You know, it's something that we, Nico and I talk about a lot. I think her most famous rescue was the one that won her the Congressional Lifesaving Medal. Uh, the 1881 one. And that was the one that I felt because because we have the deposition, because they deposed her sister and her mother and the two soldiers who she rescued, uh, that we know for a fact, there's no embellishment by the newspapers and she would have never embellished it. But, you know, the newspapers had a tendency to, you know, add all kinds of, you know, glitter to her story that wasn't really accurate. But there were two soldiers that were coming across. They were cutting across the bay to go back to Fort Adams, which is located on this peninsula on the opposite side of where Light, uh, Lime Rock Light was. And it was had been frozen over, uh, but they fell through the ice. And then so she ran out barefoot and rescued both of them with a clothesline. And if you just think about that for a second and how difficult that is, first of all, to rescue anybody, much less who's maybe suffering from hypothermia at any moment, who's actively fighting against you, who's twice the size of you. Plus, she's in 10 you know, yards of wool, which is dripping wet. And that adds 30 percent to the 30 percent of weight to that skirt as it is in a bodice. I mean, the whole thing is is ridiculous. And the fact that she was able to rescue them, I mean, her brother was with her as well, but she was sort of the one that was manning it. She had the presence of mind to do this, you know, and actually get them out of the water. I mean, and not, and and she was sick after that for a period of time. But when you think about just that whole scene, it's, it's mind boggling that this slender 103 pound woman could pull this off. Like, where did she get that strength? Yeah. I don't know. It is, it is mind boggling. Anything else uh, either of you want to add on that subject before we we move on? No, I don't think so. The only thing I guess I would add is also that she never really thought twice about running out to rescue these people. And and that's part of what's so remarkable, too, is, you know, she was quoted as saying, like, I would have done the same as anyone. But it makes you think, like, would anyone have done that? Like, what (laughs) compelled her to be so selfless and to put herself in grave danger to, to rescue strangers again and again and again. Like, was it just her sense of responsibility for, you know, the post that her family had or was, or was it a rarity of character? And I think that that's something that maybe we don't often talk about when we talk about her, but uh, it's part of what makes her, I think, kind of larger than life is like, she was, she was so humble but there's there's heroism in that humility that I think we don't often focus on. I think that we as a culture, we spend a lot of time focused on heroes who may be self-aggrandized, but there's something to be said about heroes who don't consider themselves to be heroic. And to some extent, those are the most heroic of them all. You know. So, Nico, we talked a bit about your screenplay, and I think we've uh, mentioned the fact that you're you're planning to make a, a short film first that isn't strictly based on Ida Lewis, but could you explain a little bit about that, what the short film is and why you're doing it? Yeah, so it wasn't always uh, my intention to make the short film, but Lenore and I have been working the feature for a while now. The script has been out there for a year and a half, two years, trying to find the right producer. And it's not an easy film to get made. Historically, period films, especially those set in the 19th century, they're very expensive. And unless you are, you know, Steven Spielberg or you have a deal at Netflix where you can make something period, but you can throw historical accuracy out the window to make it kind of poppy and fun, um, it can be very hard to make something historical at the scale that I envision with the sort of um, commercial viability that I want. So. Uh, we're playing the long game and needing to find the right home for it, which is the case with a lot of these stories. You know, it took it took Steven Spielberg years and years and years even to get Lincoln made. And that's Steven Spielberg uh, with, you know, the most famous person in the 19th century. So it takes a lot of patience and it takes finding the right partners uh, to make these stories. And I realized that especially now in sort of the, you know, post-COVID era of the industry, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think people are keeping their, uh, the purse strings really tight. And so the best way to demonstrate that we can make this film for a responsible price 
and to do it well is to go do it ourselves and to sort of to essentially show people what we're capable of and what we have access to and the passion that we have to tell this story. So that's why I've decided to make a short film. Um, I don't want to make a short film version of the feature length film about Ida Lewis. I want Ida Lewis's story to be her own thing and I want that to be the feature film. So what I've decided to do was again, kind of going back to my original inspiration about like there being so many stories of compelling people in the history of light keeping and to make a kind of composite character that is kind of an amalgamation of Ida and Kate Moore and Abby Burgess and all these other kind of like notable female keepers and to tell a story that is about kind of their experience and shared experience, but to do it in a commercial compelling way that also points to some of the other things we've discussed, just about outliers in society and sort of fighting against, um, you know, patriarchal government systems and um, to do that in a nuanced way that feels compelling and is a companion piece to the feature that we want to make. So we'll be sort of talking about that on our book tour and um, going to be doing some fundraising so that people can be involved in the making of that film with us if they want to support, you know, what Lauren, what Lenore and I are trying to do and support either film. So more about that to come, but I'm really, I'm really excited about that to also just finally go make something in this world. You know, it can be hard in the industry to wait for other people to tell you, you can make a movie. Sometimes yeah. you can do it yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, everything you're saying makes perfect sense. So I do, before we uh, finish today, I do want to touch on a little bit more about that, but, um, mm -hmm. and I don't want to get too far from the subject of Ida Lewis, but Lenore, I just want to, mentioned for people who don't know you've written a lot more than the Ida Lewis book you've uh, written many nonfiction books and novels and plays as well mm -hmm. uh, you've won awards for I think both your fiction and nonfiction and I'm very interested in your playwriting and you're involved in something called the Broadway Bound Theater Festival can you just say a little bit about what that's all about oh absolutely thank you yeah we uh actually my husband and I founded Broadway Bound when we moved to New York City which was in 2016 uh and Ida was you know my first book and um that's why she's like the firstborn child you know my heart will always be with Ida and but I when we moved to the city I decided you know I I took a couple of master classes in playwriting it was always interesting to me to to sort of expand expand my skill set into you know another field and then I just adapted I adapted a couple of my novels to stage and one of them we put up in 2019 uh, off Broadway, and we had a pretty successful run. It was an eight-week run, and it was right before COVID. So thank God, because <laughs> it was supposed to go up the next year. I was like, oh, boy, talk about timing, right? So, and that did really well. It was a comedy, and I really, it was called The X's, and I really, that's what my focus has been on, is licensing that play to community and regional theaters, sort of getting into the producing end of that. We started Broadway Bound because my first experience with getting a show up uh, which was another uh, adaptation of mine called Bluff, I submitted it to a festival, you know, which is sort of similar to what you see with film festivals, except little, it's different in, on many levels. I won't go into all of that. It's just the play experience, at least in New York City, which is where I was doing it, the, uh, the festivals really don't do much to prepare you for that experience. So long and the short of it is you put your show up for three particular performances, you act as the producer of that show. So it's the casting, it's, you know, getting the sets, all of that, which as a playwright or anybody who considers themselves just a writer is in a whole nother world. You know, it's the mm -hmm. other aspect of, of plays. And what we found was a lot of, well, my experience in particular, and after talking to many, many other playwrights who'd gone through it and suffered a type of PTSD because of it, I realized there wasn't really a festival for playwrights who had to become self-producers, but to sort of hold their hand during the process and teach them everything they needed to know and give them that sort of safety net so that they couldn't fail. You know, provide them with all of the infrastructure, the front of house services, uh, you know, help them with putting together their budgets, all of that. And so that's what Broadway Bound is based on. It's really sort of like a, a learning experience and trying to do this at a very inexpensively for them so they don't go broke doing it and sharing at the end of the day, sharing in the profits, you know, sharing the house with them. And, and that's been the real focus of it. And we were pretty successful. We were able to put up over 200 plays. Uh, in the course of even right at the end of COVID, you know, we were able to kind of keep everybody interested and we were one of the first theaters to open and to give people the opportunity to come see a show for a reasonable amount of money, a $25 ticket. So that was really the focus of it. And that's what kind of got me knee deep into, into producing as opposed to just writing. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so then the question would be like, why would you put Ida Lewis up on stage? Ida Lewis's story is not meant for stage, as you can sort of figure out. You know, I can't recreate the sea on stage. Um, and plays that have tried to do that have not failed, have not done well, have not fared well, and have failed. Even just getting a rainstorm on stage, you're talking about tons and tons of money. It is really, her story is meant for the screen. It is just, that's a dovetail, as far as I'm concerned. I could not figure out a way to write her story that would be effective and compelling enough to have people want to go see it. It's just, just wasn't going to happen in the way that I envisioned it. So, mm-hmm. so when Nico came along and said he was interested in doing this through his agent, I was like, and I, I saw his, his passion and I thought, this is the guy. This is the guy to bring her to life and to really do her justice. And, you know, as much as we take, you know, liberties with her life, there's no exploitation here, which is what she really suffered through, I think, when she was alive. She was taken advantage of. And um, I've never wanted that for her. You know, we really just want to bring back the authentic idea as much as we can in a way that the world can really embrace it and understand her and learn something from the life that she lived. Yeah. Well, you anticipated what I was about to ask. Were you going to put uh, Ida on stage or, or any thoughts on that? But uh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand. So, Nico, let me ask you, are you working on any projects right now besides Ida Lewis? I'm sure you're working on a, a it's probably a bunch in, in various stages of development. Uh, anything Ooh. you want to mention to the world at this point? Always, always. Um, yeah, I mean, well, you know, I didn't quite have as good of timing as Lenore when it comes to COVID. My yeah. my last film came out March 20th, 2020, which was like the day uh, the, the world shut down. So we lost our theatrical distribution. We lost yeah. our year. Um, yeah. And then it just got lost, I think, in the in the frenzy of the pandemic, unfortunately. But um, but that's out in the world. That's a romantic comedy called Hooking Up. It's available on Hulu. And I have, um, I've written a new romantic comedy that uh, I'm out with right now that producers are reading. So hopefully that can get set up soon. That's, that's about um, a professional wedding officiant in Las Vegas. So very fun, very like, you know, studio comedy. Um, and then another short film that I made, my most recent short film, you know, did very well. I had no expectations for it, but it kind of had a life of its own. We we screened around the world over 50 film festivals. We, you know, um, we won a bunch of awards. And that is a, a story that clearly demanded to have more of a life. So I've I've turned that into a sh- uh, an original series. So I've written a pilot for that and I'm out pitching that as a show that I would love the opportunity to make eventually. So always irons in the fire. Fantastic. Well, I wish you uh, all the the best with with those projects. Let's just talk a little bit more about the lecture tour. Sure. And is the schedule posted anywhere yet, or will it be? Uh, and maybe you want to mention uh, a couple of the places where you're going to be speaking. Sure. We're still working on the schedule, but we could put up a partial one. I've been just sort of waiting. We have commitments, but we didn't. We don't have specific times and dates on some of them. Yeah. Okay. It is starting to flesh out. Uh, this is sort of our entree into it, obviously your podcast. Um, in April, we're hoping to be speaking um, at the fourth biennial Lighthouse Conference, and that's in New London at the New London Maritime Society. Um, they've expressed interest. We just don't have that sort of figured out, but that would be great. We would love to do that because obviously that's our audience, you know, to a degree. It's not just Lighthouse enthusiasts, but it's also people who are interested in women's history, for instance, or history in general. You know, are just stories of great heroism. You know, we sort of yeah. touch upon different audiences. The f- the formal kind of launch in terms of an in-person event is at the Newport Historical Society for obvious reasons. They have an exhibit that they're putting together that will sort of be in tandem with our talk. <clears throat> because Nico is uh, in California, he'll be Zooming in for that event. I'll be there in person. And that's May 11th at 530. I believe they're selling tickets to that now. Uh, and I don't know the capacity, but that's kind of our, our major kickoff. And then from there, um, I'm going to do a few events in June on Cape Cod. And then Nico comes to Connecticut, thankfully. And then we're going to sort of couple up and we're going to do July 17th to the 20th. We'll be at Mystic Seaport Museum and then Bank Square Books, Stonington Historical Society, the Rose Light in Newport. That's our only Newport event in July while Nico's here. Then we're going to go up to Kittery to Rice Library, which you helped facilitate. So thank you for that. We're very, oh, you're much- very welcome. Yeah. And then maybe again at the New London Maritime Society for uh, a second go around there. Uh, I'm in Montauk at the Historical Society in July 29th. And then August, there's a couple of events that'll take me to back up to Maine 
and then down to um, Fire Island, Fire Island Lighthouse. They're interested as well. So we, um, Nico, we have a newsletter, right? Maybe you want to talk about yeah. that because that's how people can find out specifically where we're going to be and when we're going to be. I was just going to ask you about that. I believe that people can sign up to uh, be kept informed on all this. Yeah, absolutely. About about the the tour, about information about uh, you know either film and just like getting involved with us. So the best way to do that is on my website. If you go to nicoreno.com slash Ida Lewis, um, there's a little form you can sign up and uh, we're putting a newsletter together and uh, we'll keep everyone as up to date as possible. Sounds good. I'm on the list. <laughs> so I think it was a great idea to do that. I have a final question for both of you. Okay. And this one's for bonus points. All right. <laughs> Ooh, so get, yeah. your, get your number two pencils sharpened. Uh, the question is, and either of you can jump in and take this first. Question is, what to you is the most important thing that you would like people to know about Ida Lewis? Thing or things? You know, I think it, we've touched upon it, but Ida had no intention of being famous or being recognized for her accomplishments or her bravery. And I think that that's really important to know because I feel that we're in a chapter of humanity and just society in which we are all so concerned with how much attention we receive all the time. And I I heard a study recently about a, a survey of like, you know, the youth uh, of today and teenagers. And when they were asked what they want to be, you know, when they grow up or what they want to do professionally, the majority of them said influencer which essentially means that the goal is to be famous, that like, that yeah. is our concern. Like that is the drive. That is like, that is what we, that's what we exalt in our culture right now. And I think that it's not only sort of dangerous, but it's unhealthy because it's not attainable and it's not, a, it's not an actual goal. It's not like a tangible goal. Nope. Um, and I think Ida's story reminds us that none of us have actually any control over whether or not you get famous or honestly, even how successful you become. So much of that is outside of our, of our control. Um, I think it's important to look to someone like Ida and just remember that all you can do is stay true to yourself is to kind of like march to the beat of your own drummer and to just try to help your neighbors. I think at the end of the day, you know, like it's not about, what kind of fame you can attain for yourself. It's about how do you do good in your community? Um, and I think if we could learn more from her example in that respect, I think that, you know, maybe our future would be a little brighter. And I think we'd all maybe remember to just be a little kinder to one another. I want to dovetail on that if it's okay, Jeremy, because that's exactly what I was going to say was that she was an ordinary person. Ida Lewis was not gorgeous. You know, she wasn't uh, particularly interesting. She was pretty boring, actually, very lackluster in terms of being a celebrity. And this celebrity culture that Nico referenced is is troublesome for all the reasons that he said. It's what is the saying, you know, it's what you do when no one's looking that matters. And that was Ida Lewis. You know, if the world hadn't looked in 1869, we'd never know anything about this woman. We wouldn't be having this conversation. Her name would be just, you know, written down in some log book somewhere. But the world looked. And then we saw, but she really was a true hero because of, of the humility and the idea that whether the cameras were on her or not, she was going to do what she was going to do. And she did. And she continued to rescue people and she continued to live out her life as a lighthouse keeper. So I think that that's why this important, this story is so important right now. That's why the film needs to be made. That's why we need to look to people like Ida Lewis who are true heroes because everybody's gotten a little bit off thinking it's all about celebrity and it certainly is not well i love everything both of you just said and i was just thinking that ida in a sense was a lighthouse you know lighthouses don't exist to draw attention to themselves they exist to help other people and uh that's pretty Boy. much what uh, what ida was all about so uh and uh you know we have a occasional award we do on this uh podcast called be a lighthouse in the community oh. What you were saying, uh, Nico, kind of uh, made me think about that, too. So, uh, yeah, we can all be lighthouses in so many ways. So, uh, Lenore and Nico, it's always great talking with both of you. I really enjoy this. And this is to be continued. 
uh, for sure. I mean, obviously, we'll be in touch anyway, but I hope to have you back. And uh, Lenore, I, before we started the interview, uh, we were talking about your, you did a book on the Statue of Liberty. And yes. uh, I'd love to have you back and maybe devote an episode to the Statue of Liberty, which, of course, served as a lighthouse in its early days. So, Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Love to do it. Yeah, we're definitely going to do that. So uh, Lenore Skomal and Nico Reno, thank you so much. Good luck with the upcoming tour. And uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Jeremy. Jeremy. To be kept informed of Nico Reno's film projects, go to nicoreno.com. That's N-I-C-O-R-A-I-N-E-A-U.com and click on Ida Lewis. You'll see a sign-up form for the newsletter. Check out lenorescomal.com, that's L-E-N-O-R-E-S-K-O-M-A-L, for more information on all of Lenore Scomel's work. You can also sign up for a mailing list on her site. And you can buy Lenore's book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter, from online booksellers. It was a real pleasure talking with Lenore and Nico, as always. They both do excellent work, and I look forward to seeing Nico's progress with both the short film and the feature film about Ida Lewis. So, Cindy, I have something else I want to tell you about. Okay. Okay. And this is not something that was in the script, so I want to get your honest reaction to this. I, you, I sprung yep. this on Michelle recently, but I don't think you've heard that yet. No, so. I haven't. So this is a total surprise for me. So yeah, this will be my honest reaction. Okay. So <laughs> so I have an idea for, for something. I would call it an event, for lack of a, a better word. But okay. <laughs> so, so something I'm thinking about for this summer. Um, you know what a flash mob is, right? Of course. I do, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you probably know that flash mobs, uh, I'd say pretty popular, I would say a few years ago. Yeah, before I would say the pandemic. Yeah, before COVID, before the mm-hmm. pandemic, that definitely put a damper on that kind of thing, obviously in public gatherings and right, all that. Right, right. And of course, one of the main ideas of a flash mob was that there were surprise gatherings where people would arrange uh, beforehand to meet somewhere and all uh, dance to a song, that type of thing. Right. But the the general public on that in that place, whether it was in a mall or wherever it might be, a city square, didn't know anything about it. So they would be surprised by it. So that was part of the idea of a flash mob. Mm-hmm. Well, here's my idea. It's a li- sort of a flash mob idea, but it's a little different. Okay. My idea is that on a certain date, uh, and I'm thinking possibly National Lighthouse Day, which is August Ooh. 7th. It happens mm-hmm. to be on a Monday this year. So maybe it would be on the, the Sunday the day before or something sure. like that. But um, that we'd have groups uh, at lighthouses everywhere. My idea would be try to spread it as much around the world as possible. Oh, cool. Uh huh. To get either it could be a small group, it could be just a handful of people, it could be a lot of people. Uh, or whatever to all dance to the same song at the same time at a certain time but at uh, all different lighthouses at all different lighthouses okay if people are not at a lighthouse and they wanted to do it uh, at some other location that's mm-hmm. perfectly fine sure. yeah um but uh, i want the emphasis you know most of the locations to be lighthouses right and everybody of course would video the performance mm-hmm. and we put together a, like sort of a master video you know editing together a lot of these things yeah and uh my idea for a song which had been used in, by flash mobs before it's kind of a popular song for flash mobs is the song uh, all over the world by electric light orchestra Ooh, um, okay yellow yes which has, yeah which has a, a great beat and uh-huh. uh, it's a good song to dance to and there's actually sort of a standard dance there are t- kind of tutorials on youtube oh, to oh, show okay. you the steps and everything uh-huh. So people could learn the steps and do it that way, or they can do their own thing or whatever. Sure, yeah. But it's a, the nice thing about the song is that it's it's easy, to, it's good to dance to, and it's also about people having a great time and partying all over the world. All over the world, yeah. Yeah. So oh, it's, cool. It's appropriate to me. Yes, I'm in. I'm in. Okay. All like right. It. Good. 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 So you're gonna you and like uh, our, our friend Michelle Shaw uh, will be part of our our mob at Portsmouth Harbor Portsmouth Lighthouse. Harbor Lighthouse for yeah. sure. Yeah. So I'll say the same thing that I said when I announced this to Michelle recently. I and we can't do this ourselves, all by no. ourselves. So I'd like to hear from people who might be interested in helping out to organize this, mm-hmm. and also from people who think they can put something together at their location. We want to keep track of you know who's doing it and that kind of thing. Okay, yeah, fine. I like that. So I'm putting putting the call out. So if people want to take part, please email me, uh, Jeremy at uslhs.org. 
Again, Jeremy at uslhs.org. Send me a, an email. Let me know what you have in mind, whether you'd like to help. And I hope to start hearing from some people soon about this. Awesome. Hopefully we'll get a bunch of people at, at all kinds of lighthouses all over the place. <laughs> yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you're on board. Really I, absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, before we sign off, I just want to also remind people about the upcoming U.S. Lighthouse Society tours this season, including the one I'll be leading on Long Island, New York in May, May 13th to 20th. Go to uslhs.org to learn more about that and all the other tours. And of course, uh, just to remind people, donations and memberships uh, to the U.S. Lighthouse Society help to support this podcast. So, Cindy, I understand you have a quote that kind of relates to the story of Ida Lewis. Yes, a a great one. The educator Nancy Rathburn once wrote, quote, A strong woman understands that logic, decisiveness, and strength are just as feminine as intuition and emotional connection. She values and uses all of her gifts, unquote. Yeah, that is great. And that definitely Mm -hmm. applies to Ida and many uh, Mm -hmm. women lighthouse keepers over the years. So in next week's episode, we'll be talking with Jack and Toby Graham, who have been volunteer caretakers uh, slash docents, guides at many lighthouses all over the map. For now, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light.